Welcome to a News Laundry podcast. This is Global Summits. Where are we going? Hi, I am Birad Swain, and this is News Laundry podcast. Global Summits. Where are we going? Charles Dickens said, "It was the best of times. It was the worst of times." In the tale of two cities, on the anvil of French Revolution. Similarly, it is the big one for today's episode. Best or worst of times? Only time will tell. The 78th General Assembly has started in New York at the United Nations headquarters on September 15th. From our Prime Minister Modi ji to the rock star Pope Pope Francis and 60 more heads of states are going to be there. All the 193 nations member states are expected there. Other than the blueprint for development for the coming 15 years, i.e., the Sustainable Development Goals, the Pope's call for recognizing the clear and present danger of climate change is on the agenda, and so is reforming the United Nations, taking cognizance of the new changed world order. Predictably enough, India has also staked its claim to permanent membership at the Security Council. This time. without the chinese opposition in today's episode we'll be discussing the relevance of united nations in the current world order where are we shifting from multipolar bipolar unipolar to even no polar why should we care the millennium development goals 15 years of development and aid focus and is the world a better or worse place after that who are the better performers who are the laggards and can development be delinked from peace and human rights at all did the mdgs ie the millennium development goals influence national policies and programs how has india fared on the mdgs the best and the worst performing ones what should we expect from the christmas tree of sustainable development goals with 17 goals and hold your breath 169 targets what kind of new collaborative new arrangements south south north south etc are required to achieve these goals we have a fantastic kickass panel to discuss this issue and how it affects us all and why we should care before i bring in the panelists please remember programs like these are possible because of independent media when corporates pay corporates agenda is served when people pay your agenda is served Please support News Laundry. Please support independent media. Help us to keep news free. Now let's do a status check. Seventy years ago, right after the Second World War, the world came together to form the United Nations Organization, where the members are sovereign states, that is, your and my representatives and governments. UN's aim was threefold: one, peacekeeping; two, human right protection and promotion. 3 universal human development right now as we talk there are 193 member states meeting and deliberating over our shared future our destinies the past years with syrian crisis isil uprise and militarization of europe north africa and middle east the refugee crisis has become the new normal while ebola swine flu and mers and now dengue have struck in various parts with much virulence The research in case of neglected and tropical diseases and new strands of viruses are also taking off. Education has made new strides, but women's empowerment continues to be the Achilles' heels. 
Democracy is spreading, but so is the all-consuming model of speculative finance, that is capitalism which directly erodes democracy. The challenges that United Nations envisaged 70 years ago have evolved and new ones have emerged. So has public action, activism and the connected world's reaction to outrage and support. If it is the best of times or the worst of times will be known in another three weeks based on the new deal struck at the United Nations. We have with us today Jonathan Glennie from London via Skype. He is the research and policy director with Save the Children UK and a prolific contributor to Guardian. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on. Paul Divakar, who used to lead the, uh, the Vadana Todo Abhiyan, the Indian Civil Society chapter, dedicated to campaigning and monitoring the Millennium Development Goals, and now also the lead convener of the Asia Dalit Rights Forum, a platform of Dalit MPs and civil society organizations to further Dalit agenda. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hi, Viraj. Lovely to be here. Vidya Venkat, correspondent with Hindu and probably the youngest one in the panel here today, uh, covering social development and environment beat. Hi. Welcome, Vidya. Hi. Uh, happy to be a part of the panel. And saving the best for the last, Professor Sachin Chaturvedi, Director General, RIS. For our listeners who do not know, RIS is Research and Information System for Developing Countries. It is the nodal think tank of the Ministry of External Affairs, Government of India, working on government's agenda, India's agenda as an emerging economy, both in terms of its position in South-South and globally, and vis-a-vis -vis the new emerging world order. Welcome, Professor Chaturvedi. Thank you. Thank you, Viraj. Uh, it's good of you to have me on this panel. Thank you. Just want to remind us all that when we started the series, we had promised ourselves and our listeners we shall break the menace of manners, i.e. all male panels. And today is our third episode and we are still keeping our promise and the panel is not all male and that's not counting me. So Jonathan, you have been writing a lot on the crossroads that UN finds itself in right now. You have also been critical about the gag fest UN negotiations have been reduced to without mandatory commitments. We still feel it is a better model than the, the Bretton Woods institutions where money determines the voice and the vote. Tell our listeners in two minutes, is United Nations still relevant and why should we care? That's a big question. Um, and I think, you know, the UN has never been more relevant and it's never been more important. I think sometimes when people look at multilateral negotiations and point out how difficult they are and how sometimes they don't produce uh, brilliant outcomes, and you know I, I, I'm I'm as critical as anyone else, they then move on to that from that and say, well, therefore multilateralism is no longer important. Look, it doesn't work. Well, it's all we've got. There's no better model than countries sitting down and trying to negotiate and trying to improve the world through collaboration. The other option is simple competition and, and breakdown. So more than ever, we need to invest in multilateralism. More than ever, we need to invest in the United Nations. What is emerging at the moment, these sustainable development goals, is something quite brilliant, in my view, quite new, original, 
which I think over time will transform the way we think about our world, which we've split up into developed and developing and are now rolling back from that. Nevertheless, if you look at the recent Financing for Development conference in Addis, it was more warm words than actual commitments. So there's a hell of a lot of t to do in terms of actually getting governments of the world to, to, to stump up and provide the means to implement the ambitions that they're about to set out in a week's time. But like I say, more than ever, we need to push multilateralism and believe in it because the other option is too, too disastrous to contemplate. Professor Chaturvedi? I think... Uh, my we are in times when UN has far more relevance than ever before. There are three reasons for that. Number one, the uh, bilateral and, uh, and sub-regional or regional agenda, which uh, hitherto was on the margin and, and US was playing an important role, has largely been hijacked by, uh, by powerful private sector enterprises. And, and, and this is setting in the uh, uh, kind of issues which are of uh, 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 great significance for, uh, for several people who are uh, uh, completely deprived of the kind of uh, 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 challenges that, uh, 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 that uh, otherwise the uh, institution like UN should have been addressing. Second, and I think far more important, is in terms of reflecting the new realities of economic growth in emerging economies, particularly uh, India, China, Brazil, South Africa. The UN, uh, the institutional architecture that we have does not reflect uh, this. So we need uh, UN, but we need UN which is far more adapted to the new realities. And third and final is in terms of the global challenges we are facing, be that from acad uh, 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 the, the kind of epidemics that we are facing in different parts of the world to to money laundering, to, uh, 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 to tax evasion, transfer pricing, global tax uh, evasions, etc. They require multilateral efforts. So from, from these three perspectives, I think UN and, and a resilient uh, UN is, 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 is a greater need of the times. Thank you. Uh, Paul? I think, excellent. I mean, this is one, especially the framework that is now coming up with the Sustainable Development Goals 2030 uh, is an emergence of a new uh, UN direction where instead of talking in silos and human rights on one hand and economic, social, cultural on the other hand, here there is an attempt to merge and bring a more comprehensive set of uh, benchmark uh, standards on, on issues right from poverty to cities to water to climate change to human rights. Uh, this is an excellent uh, uh, mission in terms of a framework that has been developed. Of course, it has watered down what UN has already uh, said in many of its either uh, conventions, uh, charters, and several of its other monitoring mechanisms, that strengthening of this framework, I think, is a real challenge, but definitely it is the need of the hour. Vidya, 
You've been writing copiously since the last few weeks. Yeah. Your uh, take? I mean, uh, I think uh, all of the panelists here have been a bit upbeat about the UN and what it can achieve. But, uh, you know, I would like to uh, throw a spanner in this uh, thing and uh, perhaps, you know, try and play a bit of a devil's advocate here. I feel that the UN, uh, I mean, with especially when I look at the draft of the Sustainable Development Goals, I think they are being too expansive and ambitious. And uh, given the track record of the MDGs itself, I mean, the fact that a few uh, development experts in New York and Washington sat and decided what uh, other countries of the world should do. And, uh, you know, according to a recent survey by The Guardian, only 4% of people in the UK even knew what the MDGs are. Um, uh, so, I mean, while it all looks good on paper, I mean, it's all nice to say that we want a better world and we don't want to leave anyone behind, uh, you know, and um, Indian government also pitching in and, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, framing its uh, policies at home, aligning it with what the SDGs are saying, like sabka saath, sabka vikas and kind of thing. It all, it's all good. But, you know, uh, to what extent is it really making a difference? I think that is what we should be thinking. As far as the UN is concerned, I, th uh, I mean, uh, the permanent five uh, who sit there, they are the ones calling the shots. And even though the SDGs was a far more democratic process, I mean, coming up with the document, uh, there was wider participation. But then uh, even when we look at the means of implementation and we look at the Addis Ababa financing for development um, uh, agenda, again, there are apprehensions among uh, the G77 China and even India has expressed this apprehension that perhaps the West is again setting the finance agenda for these uh, SDGs. So uh, we still are in a world where, you know, things are kind of looking good, but, you know, there are these concerns. So I, I think the UN should uh, try and break out of this, uh, uh, you know, few developed Western countries, uh, you know, getting to set the agenda, getting to control the way things are moving. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to the reform process and uh, because UN reform is the big long thing overdue. is the long overdue and it's the big thing that everyone is looking at with the 70th uh, General Assembly session that's that's the big thing that's going to be discussed so I hope uh, this kind of uh, you know a few countries controlling thing would perhaps uh, we'll get over that phase and the UN would genuinely be a global body that uh, provides a level playing uh, field for member countries. So for our listeners, the Millennium Development Goals were signed up in 2000 with a timeline of 15 years, that is 2015. And as they're phasing out in this week, the Sustainable Development Goals, the next set of global goals are being negotiated and will be signed up. Uh, for our listeners again, the folklore is that the Millennium Development Goals, as Vidya said, were drafted in the basement of a UN office uh, by a bunch of technocrats, which is why the Sustainable Development Goals has actually seen unprecedented public consultation spread over three years across multiple countries and multiple locations and multiple platforms to actually bring up this Christmas tea. We will be tackling this whole issue of pragmatism 
optimism versus ambition and is there a balance and should there be a balance also in due course of this uh, uh, podcast and for our listeners again since financing for development has already come up by professor chaturvedi vidya and jonathan our first episode of this podcast is on financing for development which also had a kickass panel please do listen to that now to the next question paul you've almost made a fine art of monitoring mdgs and their implementation as your passion project tell our listeners why are they important what has india achieved and how does india fare vis-a-vis other countries of the world but uh, thank you viraj uh, i think what is important is that always the water is 50% empty but it's also the glass is 50% full there are several gaps in this framework and i'm not going to focus more on uh, uh, i mean i'm going not going to focus on the gaps but what are the challenges and the opportunities that this framework opens to all especially southern countries my first aspect is that the south within the globe and the at the south within the global south have not sufficiently and uh, been included in the concerns for this framework to be robust in back in the countries as well as in the region uh just citing one example the aspect of discrimination based on work and descent which is very different from the eurocentric forms of discrimination which looks at only uh race color and other visible forms there is a particular discrimination that is called as discrimination based on work and descent which 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 has a form which discriminates based on the notions of purity and pollution and this is present right from japan where buraku community is affected to the dalits in 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 the in the last in the worst of uh, uh, asia uh especially south asia to 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 tribes certain tribes of discrimination within countries like senegal to kilambo in brazil in latin america so you're talking about a, a very wide form of discrimination which is quite has affected fundamentally access to human rights access to services access to several aspects of financing which is needed for the overall development to ensure that we achieve these goals now this aspect has not been touched at all and we are talking about a huge group of 260 million across the world and if they all gather together they are about sixth largest nation in the world now if we look at this and look at the targets and see if we have to if we have to achieve these targets in each of these countries especially we looked at the five countries of nepal pakistan india sri lanka and bangladesh the frameworks i think india has done the best india has got the framework india has got the fundamental uh, rights for exclusively these communities and these need to be uh, really showcased for it to be addressed across the world and especially in south asia and if you look at after india probably nepal has some beginning to come with with some kind of a framework when talking about anti discrimination uh, affirmative action that is needed 
and substantive equality that needs to be practiced in access to education, access to employment, and in access to political representation. And these we have felt, and we looked at both the aspect of uh, law and governance, we looked at market, and in all the private sector, private sector aspect, especially in the areas of recruiting, in workplace, in supply chain, and in financial inclusion, there are wide gaps, including India, that certain policies need to be put in place and implementation has to be uh, enhanced. So we have looked at the targets and said, what are the mechanisms that are available in each country and what further needs to be challenged, which we can overcome the barriers to achieve these goals across these nations. So Paul, in one sentence, just tell me, is this a mixed performance, good, bad, ugly? I think it is, it is good in terms of identifying this as an issue. It is good in terms of uh, having certain policies in place. The challenge is now implementation and seeing that these policies do uh, take an effective place in these countries. So certain policies are there, it's excellent. The mechanisms need to be a little bit more robust and implementation has to be improved quite a lot. Vidya, you've been writing and your skepticism breathes from there. Your take? Yeah, uh, well, basically, I mean, with the MDGs, uh, if you look at the way India has performed, uh, I mean, uh, there were eight goals of the MDGs, and uh, as per a UN assessment, only four of the goals were uh, achieved. And even if you look at the goals that we say that we have achieved, there is a lot of confusion about uh, how authentic that claim is. For example, poverty. I mean, we all know that India's poverty line has, is famously called the Kuttabili line, you know, that, you know, it's like uh, you know, one can barely survive on that poverty line, like some thousand bucks for the urban poor and some 500, 800 rupees for the rural or some, some range like that. I may not have got the exact figures correct because I'm uh, quoting it from memory. Uh, for our Listeners, since this is an explainer series, this is a really important point Vidya is making. Some of the definitions of the goals are so diluted and ultra-conservative that just being barely alive means that you're meeting the goal. Uh, hunger is a classic example. In 2012, the Roman Triad of Food and Agriculture Organization, IFAD, and World Food Program came together and put the hunger definition calculation at 1,800 calories. 1,800 calorie is barely enough for an adolescent young adult having a completely sedentary life. All of us know poor work hard. In tropical sunny conditions, they work much more harder. The body heat loss is much worse. In Anantapur, Telangana area, a manual worker almost loses 3,700 calories in daily wage work. So an 1,800 calories is actually a cruel joke. Um, and then to say that we've reached the hunger goal by this ultra-conservative number is a joke on the everyday living reality of the most marginalized, as Paul was talking about, the South amongst the global South. Same as Vidya said, the poverty line definition, they're so diluted, they're almost destitution line. 
26 rupees per person in rural India, 32 rupees per person in urban India are almost destitution line. Let me do a shameless plug. Uh, in News Laundry, I have written your host, Birad Swain. I've written three pieces on why it's time to vandalize mainstream economics and statistics and reclaim mainstream economics and statistics to speak with the living and lived realities of the poor and the hungry. And hence, once we start doing that exercise, the meeting of Millennium Development Goals will also be uh, revised. In fact, Back to Biraj, you, Vidya. Yeah. Uh, in fact, thank you, Biraj, for uh, I mean explaining it in uh, that kind of detail. Uh, but um, uh, you know, uh, in fact, India has not met even the MDGs hunger goal. You know, uh, I mean, as as far as the MDGs were concerned, one of the targets for India was to have hunger, you know, half the proportion of hungry people. And we haven't managed to meet even that goal. So even with that conservative definition, we haven't even managed to meet that. So I think that says a lot about, you know, setting uh, ambitious and uh, high sounding goals and targets. Uh, but you know, you need commitment on the ground to work to make them a reality. And, um, you know, I think that is where my concern comes from, that, you know, we sign these agreements. Uh, you know, India, Narendra Modi is going to uh, New York to attend the UN uh, General Assembly. He's going to sign the uh, SDGs agreement. Uh, but the truth is that even at home, we don't have the preparedness uh, to, I mean, we couldn't meet the eight goals and the 18 targets of MDGs. In fact, even the 18 targets, India chose to implement only 12 because we realized that as a nation, we could only do justice to those 12 targets. Um, and now we are going to commit to, you know, implement uh, the 17 goals and the 169 targets, you know. So, uh, so th this is where my concern really is that on the MDGs, we haven't really done so, Professor Chaturvedi, so well. you actually don't have a luxury of skepticism. You can only work with all these limitations and still make it happen. Uh, exactly. What are your uh, thoughts uh, no, now? I think uh, uh, we would have to appreciate the fact that, and as uh, uh, Vidya rightly mentioned in the beginning, that uh, uh, MDG, uh, they evolved uh, uh, wherever they did. Uh, they were alien to, uh, to most of the developing world, including India. Uh, and, and I think last 15 years, world has really changed. And, and as I've been saying that uh, the electoral politics in, uh, in, uh, um, in, in uh, most of the South, particularly after uh, Arab Spring or whatever you say, awareness among masses has multiplied many times. And as a result, there is huge pressure on, uh, on, on, the, on the system to perform. And 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 uh, state after state, we have seen uh, uh, um, uh, the governments which haven't performed on on uh, social indicators, on infrastructure, have, have been wiped out completely. So as a result, uh, 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 public expectations have multiplied. And 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 what these expectations are, basically hovering around what you see among these numbers of uh, uh, goals, indicators, targets, whatever you call them. So my point number one is that. Uh, Irrespective of what we are committing at uh, SDG in New York, uh, the uh, the alien part of it, what was attached and and was uh, uh, hovering around MDG, has disappeared. 
irrespective of what we do at international level, we find a huge convergence in domestic agenda and international commitment, which is happening for the first time. Uh, neither in WTO nor in WIPO, we had such huge convergence. On the contrary, what we committed at WTO, governments back home had no face to tell people in 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 reality what they have committed themselves there was an for. industry of spin absolutely doctoring. absolutely so so that uh, that thing has gone it has evaporated it's transparent there's clear convergence so so uh, uh, development agenda in urban india development agenda in rural india you find aspirations converging you find issues related to tax evasion, transfer pricing, this anger against business is, is very much there. But now my point is that uh, uh, the, the uh, government as well as uh, UN have realized this role of societal stakeholders who have to deliver. Government, which in case of MDG, was the only one to deliver. Here, role of civil society, role of industry, corporate social responsibility, etc. have been combined. And this combined force is huge. Now, question is, you have identified these actors. Who would enable them to deliver? That's, that's what the issue is. And, and mind it, that the role, the targets, indicators, goals would have this huge maneuvering space. So, so don't go by 169, 17 numbers alone. We, we have maneuvering space. We can prioritize them. Each state can prioritize. Nation as a whole can prioritize what you have to report on, what you don't want to undertake. It doesn't matter. So I think comparison between MDG and SDG would have to be very nuanced, very careful. Sweeping comments would not help. Jonathan, your take. Did MDGs matter and did they cast a long shadow on the national policies and programs? And is the world a better place thanks to the MDGs 15 years later? That's a big, big question. I, I liked I liked your um, Charles Dickens quote at the beginning. Thank you. Uh, because I think, you know, that's quite a good way of thinking about these things. There are many things in the last 15 years that have got better. And there are other things that are remaining fairly stagnant and there are other things that have got worse and i think that's probably true of most periods of human history um so you know maybe we should avoid hyperbole too much i mean i think i i, I agree with the outrage uh that, that some panelists have expressed about the failure of the indian government and indian polity to actually respond to the urgent needs of the poorest people and also the utter stinginess of the poverty line whether it be the indian national line or the international 125 a day figure of the uh, nutrition targets it, it, terribly stingy i couldn't agree more we have to just um we have to persuade people that this idea that once you've passed over that line you're kind of out of poverty is utter nonsense um nevertheless there are some targets just to defend the mdg which are more substantial in other words reducing internal uh mortality reducing child mortality now those really are substantial targets and we have seen great progress globally in the last 15 20 years on those uh issues uh, we've also seen great economic growth in a number of countries and poverty has gone down in many countries um is that related to the, the mdgs as such well i mean I think we have to be really careful not to exaggerate the importance of a document signed by heads of state in New York. 
I think the, the you know the the most important things are national and local um, campaigns and political uh, movements. Uh, actually, technological advance is a huge part of the reason why why progress has been made on, especially in health, but also in other areas. Um, and I think the most important thing to realise about whether it's the NDGs or the SDGs is that it's a small part of the momentum that we need to build to persuade those in power to to, to improve and to uh, and to actually you know build uh, movements for change. Is 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 a document in New York going to going to change everything? Of course it isn't. And, and when people build it up as if it's going to change the world, you know, next week, that's you know clearly nonsense. But is it going to be part of something? Can can peer pressure among countries help? Yes, I think there's evidence that it can. People uh, and countries care about how well countries next door are doing. Can it help advocates if something is written down that they've signed up to on reducing mortality or on improving governance or on re- or, or on reducing climate emissions and those kind of things? You know, is it helpful? Yes, it is. Is it going to change the world? Probably not. You know, let's not overemphasize the importance of this but let's not underemphasize it either this document just like the un declaration of human rights in my view is a powerful vision for the future uh, of our world for a much better world do we fulfill the un declaration of human rights no is it useful to have it to wangle in front of government's faces when they get it wrong yes it is useful and it's really relevant uh thank you jonathan for our listeners again um while as a moderator i should not be taking positions Um, I think there is a consensus around the table, and I definitely do agree with my body of work in development, is that the body of document, be it MDG, SDG, or as Jonathan said, UDHR, they do provide citizenships and civil society, and every engaged stakeholder in the government and government systems to actually benchmark their own country narrative to the best. the fact that the official development assistance is still frozen at 0.7% of the gross national income of the richest countries of the OECD Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development bloc is a matter of great concern for all of us india has been fighting that battle also and we are also living in the post 2008 meltdown world as professor chaturvedi said the world is changing fast and a lot of these challenges are evolving and rescripting themselves but i think we can all take heart from the fact that these energies which are coming into co-drafting and co-creating documents will also sustain to ensure these documents are translated into a- implementable actionable agenda and monitored when they falter and they'll give some legitimate biting teeth for institutions civil society and citizenry to bark and exercise their their uh, rights but vidya do you do have a contrarian voice so please air it before we go to the next yeah. point yeah i mean one thing i would like to say is i do not want to dampen the spirits of people who are happy about a good sdg document coming out or a good vision emerging from the uh, you know uh, coordinated efforts of the various un member countries uh, but then if you look at uh, the vision and the reality there is a gap right 
now which we need to acknowledge and we have another 15 years to go you know so 2030 uh, is when the sdgs expire so by then i think there has to be an effort because if you look at the way uh, the developed world is functioning right now or behaving right now what they are signing on these documents and what they are declaring is very different from what they are actually doing and actions unfortunately speak louder yes, than I, words yes, uh, for example yes. you look at the wto uh, ruling no, we'll, against no we have we have know, to India. we have two more episodes <laughs> dedicated to wto yeah. so we'll not get into yeah. wto now but i think the point being made is important that is three things number one in the process of united nations making many of the summits gag-faced talking shops is it also undermining its own importance because a lot of the summits are are uh, are the ambitious aspirational goals and they are not mandatory minimums so if we do not have negotiable mandatory minimums if we do not have country governments signing up and pledging and delivering on some things then they do become talking shop and gag fest and any platform which is continuously allowing those gag fest to happen results in also undermining its own self and we've seen in the last few years the number of gag fests increasing and the mandatory mandatory minimums decreasing the access between the north and the south the developed and the developing has been ratcheted but now with the power center shifting especially after the post 2008 meltdown world there is way more flux and way more shifts and india is also being expected to shift at least punch at its weight if not punch below its weight so uh, i think there are all those geopolitical realities and international political economy that we have to deal with and uh, again a shameless plug we are going all the way till january we'll have two dedicated episodes on world trade organization we'll have two dedicated episodes on climate change and we i can assure you it's going to be great fun to rip them apart so please stay tuned now to the next question jonathan are you disappointed with this 0.7% oda commitment uh, not being touched and the fact that so many countries are yet to even uh, reach it so where is the financing for this 17 goals 169 targets christmas tree coming from and um, what are your thoughts about that because also internal revenue streams as even professor chaturvedi said illicit financial flows tax evasion all of that part of plugging it is also to jack up the revenue to put into development finance but your thoughts since you are in the unique position of sitting in london but wearing on your shirt sleeves the agenda of the south the fact that 0.7% oda has not been touched or has not been scaled up well yeah i mean it's a it's a good point i mean again going back to your your question is it the best of times or the worst of times i think in terms of outcomes like i said you know it's a mix in terms of where we are in the in terms of the global context for a, for a, for a agreement such as this and for commitments to be made it's not a good time so whereas in 2000 the mdgs were emerged in a in an economic context where certainly the richer countries in the world were feeling uh, very well uh, and you know aid more than doubled and i think it's probably tripled in the last uh, 15 years um now since the global crash or certainly the crash in the, in the west um it's not a good time to be asking countries for more money um that's not something i support it's just a, a reality nevertheless and one has to recognize that the uk has met 
for the first time under a Conservative government, the 0.7% target. What's the lesson there? That decades of campaigning has finally worked. Uh, this is the culmination of a long, uh, hard road for British civil society. And we've finally got what I think is a historic step forward, which is that legally the UK is now permitted to reach 0.7 every year. Now, having said all of that, um, it's really, really important to emphasize that aid is not the answer to financing the SDGs. In a country like India, aid has been a tiny percentage of, of, of India's GDP for for many years, uh, an increase in aid will will be almost irrelevant to whether or not India reaches its SDG. Now, I actually think aid can be very useful in India as a kind of catalytic role to support civil society, to support innovative approaches, to support a whole bunch of things, possibly especially in regional areas that are not doing very well, remembering that India is such a divided country. Um, but in terms of quantity, aid is irrelevant pretty much, and, and the same is true for many countries around the world. So yes, aid is going to be important for the poorest countries, and we need to keep the pressure on to increase it. But the most important thing is to focus on countries developing their own tax base so that they have strong uh, and full um, exchequers that they can spend ideally as equitably as possible and as progressively as possible to support education, to support health and other uh, functions of the state. Um, and that's the area that we need to focus on. And we've heard people talking already about tax evasion and the way that attempts by countries to develop their own tax base are constantly undermined by an international financial system that is working against them, by a trade system that is working against them. Uh, and they're the most important things. And yes, I agree with those that have said that it's, it, there are areas that the rich world, yes, has begun to talk about. Again, the culmination of many years campaigning. At Addis, we saw much more talk of tax and domestic resources than we would have done in Monterey and and previously. So, you know, we're stepping forward in terms of actually putting these issues on the agenda when it comes to actually turning around um, and getting and getting actual policies and, and change where we're up against huge power. We're up against big business. We're up against powerful people that do not want to change. So, you know, let's not be too hard on ourselves. Let's keep up the struggle. Let's keep up the campaign. Um, thank you. We have Paul and Professor Chaturvedi leaving us, so we would like to take the final words from both of them. Professor Chaturvedi, you come with the express mandate of not just building the knowledge base for the Global South, but also working with the civil society, uh, localizing the SDGs and making it a citizen's agenda. One question. First, what are your expectations from this summit? And second, how do you expect going forward this whole creative collaboration of working with civil society and citizenry will work out? Uh, Ma, thanks, Major. I think uh, it's, it's extremely clear uh, the, the outcome of the summit. We already have uh, a text of uh, declaration which is adopted by, by all the countries. It is clear text, uh, no negotiations on that. Uh, then uh, second is this uh, 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 issue of uh, uh, 17 goals, which is also very clear. So once uh, hazardous states are going to uh, endorse these two uh, uh, clear uh, documents, the uh, onus would lie on the UN Statistical Commission to come up with the indicators. The exercise which would go on for next three months, by February we are expecting everything to be uh, frozen. From that point of view, I think uh, uh, awareness at the, at the local level 
would be extremely important. You very rightly said that uh, we would have to localize and, and, and somehow the disconnect that we see, particularly in India, of our global commitments and our local development agenda that we would have to plug in and somehow uh, without uh, uh, the help of we don't require money as as niti's uh, ceo has been saying that money is not a problem problem is implementation so you bring in monitoring uh, groups so civil society has that uh, role not exactly as watchdog but 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 some somebody who can participate and 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 bring a change and that's where uh, space for civil society would have to be created and for that capacity building across civil society is also important so in my view uh, uh, the the agenda after this is in terms of creating awareness creating capacity and allowing monitoring to be transparent and open so that results are available to people thank you very thank much you. i'm thank sure you. we'll continue this new this conversation iteratively thanks a lot and i hope we'll also catch you in new york Paul, your take and your expectations going forward. One major challenge, Viraj, is in, in this entire economic arena of these SDG goals and the gender and social justice aspects of the goals, which 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 of the of the targets. When you look at no poverty, uh, no hunger, and reduced inequalities, the whole aspect of good jobs with economic growth. There is absolutely very weak targeting of within the country equality. Yes, I think definitely between the country equalities is a major concern that needs to be addressed. And I think we all should look at the old patterns of colonialism are totally abolished. But what about the new colonization and the new exclusions that are taking place within the countries in the global south. Whether it's in the north, which we have seen, whether it's in the south, the huge issues of migration, the huge issues of, 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 of discrimination, the gender justice that is there. And, and most of all, if you really look at you know, goals like a target like 8.3, which they promote development-oriented policies that support decent job creation, entrepreneurship, and uh, ensure that there is an including access to these financial services to the most vulnerable, those aspects are not at all being translated into systems, mechanisms which address inequalities within the country. I think this is a major challenge, and these we are trying to take up in this process of indicators. What you don't recognize, what you don't monitor, it doesn't get managed and it gets totally excluded. And I feel, as I raised earlier, this whole aspect of caste-based discrimination is being hidden under the carpet. And this entrenched system, which will affect issues of poverty, issues of equality, issues of health, issues of good jobs with economic growth, is not going to make a difference to the, uh, to the Dalit women, to the children who are born there, to the migrant communities and those who are being discriminated on a day-to-day -day life. And those who are not able to access justice because there is also discrimination in access to justice. Now, these, how are we going to address these? I think these indicators, first of all, they're the challenges. We need to first outright mention these aspects, that it is naming 
the institutions of caste, institutions of uh, dissented occupation, which need to be addressed, and I think in indicators, these need to be included. And I think our attempt at, at the ensuring that parliamentarians, there are about 50 uh, civil society leaders and parliamentarians are going to uh, participate actively in demanding that targets you have excluded but do not exclude measuring these from the perspective of the excluded so that at least in the way that policies are translated in the country that we don't neglect these inequalities within countries. I think that is a major challenge and we really hope that uh, you know broadcasts like yours and uh, several other concerned citizens raise this issue so that this aspect is robust. Thank you, Paul. Wish you a great trip, and we really hope to catch you up in New York also. All the best, Viraj. Um, Vidya, I think this is a great segue since Hindu is committed to actually shining a light on the caste-based discrimination. Your beat is social development also. Uh, do you think this south of the south, the last mile, always gets dropped out, never gets counted, and then the, all the... A uh, meeting of Millennium Development or SDGs will mean meaningless unless and until you start counting from them. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I perfectly agree with you on, uh, on that point. In fact, uh, the lack of awareness of the MDG shows that there's been very little effort to mobilize the people on whose behalf these goals have been set. You know, we are talking about the marginalized, we're talking about the poor, we're talking about people who don't enjoy basic entitlements. And the fact that these people have not joined the conversation yet shows that there is something amiss, you know. I, and my genuine hope is that with the SDGs, this doesn't happen. And, you know, there are civil society organizations like those led by Paul and uh, Amitabh and others in this space. Uh, you know, I think uh, there has to be a genuine effort to involve them. For example, uh, I mean, if you're talking about, uh, you know, let us not leave anyone behind, then why is it that you are leaving behind people who should take part in the conversation? Don't leave those people behind even when you have conversations about this. You know, so uh, I mean, I, I perfectly agree with you that, you know, a lot of people tend to get dropped out and, uh, you know, uh, and I feel that with the SDGs, we should make the most of the opportunity to include those on whose behalf, you know, these go many of these goals. We're talking about climate change, you know, and it's one of the big things, you know, this uh, this year, the UN, uh, you know, it's going to be on top of the agenda. That's that's what the president, um, Mr. Morgan's Liketoft, mm. said when he spoke, uh, you know, he gave a lecture before he, uh, you know, after he met Mr. Modi in India during his two-day visit. So climate change is affecting, you know, ordinary farmers, you know, like uh, landless, uh, poor, the farmers who depend on the land, you know, Climate change is affecting agricultural productivity. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's touching a lot of lives in developing countries. Look at Bangladesh. I mean, they're really tackling with the impact of floods and sea level rise. And there, there are all these challenges. So I think this conversation has to include these people, you know, about whom this conversation actually is. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I feel that the, the so-called subaltern 
need to really speak now. You know, where we have to engage them. We need to engage the farmer who probably lost his uh, rubby crop because the rain came at the wrong time or something. You know, uh, th these are the people the SDGs is talking about. I mean, even though the language might be very eloquent and very flowery, you know, at the end of the day, who are we referring to? We are referring to people like them. So, the conversation has to grow. It has to take these very people into the fold. So for our listeners again, uh, something that Vidya said is historically what democracies and taxation principles and public finance has been fighting for. That is nothing about us without us. No agenda, no deal to be finalized, no policy to be made without our voices and our participation. And uh, explainer, Rabi is the season of crop which is sowed from June and it's harvested in late um, uh, December, November and because of the erratic uh, climate conditions in India we've had not one but two spells of both the crop cycles having been hit very badly with a spate of farmer suicides with a spate of agrarian crisis. So when Climate skeptics can sit in the ivory tower and challenge and continue to challenge if climate change is a mm, notional issue, is it a uh, paid for business agenda. The impact is here and now, very real from farmer to fisher folk and the ones in the last mile, the ones at the margins get hit most. In fact, again, explainer series, the latest International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, IPCC report, does say that South Asia is going to be hardest hit by the climate disasters, by the uh, freaky weather conditions and the erratic climate patterns. And India and South Asia are going to have be in the throes of food insecurity also. So, so these are can I, not add, can I just add a point on yes, that? Yes, please, Shiraj. please, Jonathan, yeah. Yeah. It might have to be my last one because I've got to shoot off. But um, in, in your previous speaker mentioned um, the, the poorest. I, I think and I hope that one of the new pieces of language that the SDGs are going to bring in is this language of leave no one behind. Now, how do we make it uh, more than just some simple rhetoric? Well, what, what, the government, what governments are going to promise to do when they sign this document next week is that no target will be considered met just on average across the country. It has to be met by all segments of society. Now, India is a classic example. In terms of child mortality or maternal mortality, some parts of India, some parts of society have already met quite high standards, whereas others are way, way behind the global norm. India could meet an average national target quite easily. But in order to make sure that all groups of society meet what, what, what are the maternal mortality and child mortality um, targets of the SDGs by 2030, that is going to require a huge amount of effort for the bottom 20% in the economic terms to reduce maternal mortality and child mortality to, to the low levels required by the SDGs. I think that's quite a historic shift. And I think that's something that campaigners in India could take to their government and say, look, this is going to require a huge amount more effort into the bottom strata of society than you've been putting in so far. Thank you. Uh, would you also like to give some concluding remarks? And are you sort of looking forward to write a re 
reactive after the deal is signed formally? Well, I mean, I agree with what a lot of people have said, which is that it's one thing having a document, it's another thing implementing it. I think there is so far to go on so many of these issues. Actually, I'm quite um, excited by uh, progress that's being made on a lot of issues around the world, and I think we have to celebrate. Sure, it's not as fast as we would have wished, but the last few years have been better than, than previous decades in terms of improving the lives of some, some of the poorest people in the world. Um, however, there's so far to go. And when it comes to inequality, I'm worried that that's actually increasing. And when it comes to environmental sustainability, we are miles away from where we need to be in terms of safeguarding the planet for future generations and reducing the chance of really quite catastrophic climate change and the impacts that will have on the poorest and migration and all those kind of things. So at the moment, it is, it's very good words, but it is still words. And actually, the struggle starts the minute they've signed the document. We have to bring it to our governments, hold it under their noses, and insist that they uh, put, put their money where their mouths are. Thank you, Jonathan. Hope you can stay at least today for the next few minutes till we wrap it up. Vidya, you're concluding. And I really hope we can bring you back again for a few more episodes. It was fantastic for you to join us. Vidya, concluding remarks. Okay, my concluding remarks would be like, uh, you know, I would like to start with something I mentioned earlier and elaborate on that, is that actions speak louder than words. I think the developed countries who are going to sign on to this ambitious document uh, next week need to live up to what they are promising to do. You know, that means, uh, you know, allow... Uh, developing countries to get their share of finances so that they can, uh, you know, uplift uh, the uh, marginalized communities in their country. Don't, uh, you know, use the, these goals or these targets as a tool to harass or, you know, to play dirty foreign policy, you know, like uh, some of the countries are uh, doing right now. They shouldn't do that and they should, it should be a collaborative effort uh, and uh, if you look at the global tax regime, for example, it's it's we are really this is uh, the the global tax regime right now is pitted against developing countries like India, which lose a lot of revenue, domestic revenue, uh, because uh, the tables are turned against us right now. But that has to change. Uh, you know, it we need a level playing field, and um, you know, and I and, and I really hope that with the reform process in the UN uh, now setting in motion. Uh, this will change and, you know, the SDGs would be more successful than the MDGs. So on that note, again, a shameless plug the, for the global tax regime. Please do listen to the episode one podcast on FFT. India is neither the victim nor the benign player in the global tax regime game. And we are definitely punching above our weight. And we are also partly re responsible for the mess also. But having said that, Thank you for staying with us. This was our curtain raiser on the Sustainable Development Goals Summit, which will determine our shared futures and destinies for us and our children for the next 15 years. We'll bring a post-summit reactive from New York too. As for why we should care, we live in an interconnected world from finances, goods, trades, humans, to even diseases and vi viruses and values. Everything is flowing without borders, across borders. Hence, we need to care because we can't turn the clock back and go back to our isolated hermitage. 
but we should also care because this is our real chance to influence the global narrative for the better, for our fraternity, brotherhood, or even sisterhood, sorority, to shine and speak, as all the panelists said. Thank you for listening to News Laundry Podcast, Global Summits, Where Are We Going? We would like to thank our collaborators, Save the Children India, the leading nonprofit dedicated to children, for their support in bringing this program to you. This is part of their global campaign, Action 2015, to build public awareness and pressure on world leaders for just global deals for a just future for all. This episode was produced by Karthik Nijhavan from Team News Laundry. In the next episode, we'll bring it live, deferred live from New York, a post-summit reactive and the sights and sounds of the Big Apple when the development geeks congregate. Please stay tuned. We would love to hear from you. Give us your feedback, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and please support independent media so you can decide where are we going. This is Biraj Swain signing off for News Laundry. Catch all new episodes of Global Summits Where Are We Going on newslaundry.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook.